This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to The Waterboy from 1998, directed by Frank Karachi, written by Tim Hurley and Adam Sandler, starring Adam Sandler, Kathy Bates, and Henry Winkler. However, quickly before we get to the show, next week we will be discussing a brand new film for both of us, Victory from 1981, directed by John Huston. I think it's actually our first John Huston film in uh, uh, the history of our show, written by Evan Jones and Yabo Yablonski, starring Sylvester Stallone, Michael Caine, Max von Sydow, and Pele. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L. G-O-O-D. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com to sign up for our newsletter or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. And as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. We would really appreciate it. So dad, let's turn our attention to The Waterboy. What is your relationship to this movie? Well, this was released on November 8th, 1998. And at that weekend, your mother had some sort of family thing. I can't remember if it was a wedding. I'm pretty sure it was a Butterfield, Minnesota thing. Uh, I'm not sure it was. I think it was some sort of like like bridal shower or something like that. I wanted to say it was one of my great-grandma's 80th birthdays. It, well. And I'm pretty sure I had a Pop Warner football game, so you and I stayed behind. Okay. Anyway, so I took you to this movie. So, eight-year-old Tom. Yes, I very fondly remember going to this movie with you and repeating the lines much afterwards. And kind of in the same vein that we did with Dodgeball or that I did with Talladega Nights or with Step Brothers or Forgetting Sarah Marshall, some of the seminal comedies of my youth. Yes, that's my relationship I don't know if I've seen it more than one time since. Really? Yeah. I I don't remember what. I think maybe once I've seen it since. And quite frankly, it was still really clear in my memory. So, yeah, I think I've watched this movie probably at least two dozen times in some fashion or another over the course of the last 20 some years. I mean, it's almost going to be 25 years ago next year, so... I mean, it seems like a long time ago, but I agree with you. It's still very vivid in my memory, having seen it for the first time and repeating certain lines when you go to football practice the next week. Water sucks. It really, really sucks. You can do it. (laughs) Don't you hate Rob Schneider? Yes, I do. It's the only thing he's ever done that has any level of redeeming quality. You didn't like Deuce Bigelow, European Gigolo? <laughs> God, I watched about 10 minutes of it. And after I got out of the bathroom from vomiting, I uh, <laughs> I said, no, I'm not watching anymore. I will admit the other redeeming quality is, is it's Clint Howard. 
having getting an opportunity to see Clint Howard in something other than one of his brother's films or reruns of Gentle Ben. So if you were to pitch this movie to somebody who had no clue what the water boy was, how would you do it? Uh, David and Goliath meet on a college football field. Interesting that you focus on the dichotomy of the David versus Goliath. Why'd you go that way? Because ultimately that's what it is. We have this social misfit who, uh, you know, is basically homeschooled, completely controlled by his domineering mother, is abused and belittled and such, and he rises up to become the star. That's David versus Goliath. Goliath isn't the general people or the team or anything. It's general society and attitudes that we have towards certain people. Boy, I guess I never equated David and Goliath as a story to standing up for yourself, but more of overcoming overwhelming odds. I don't know if the water boy coming in and having quite literally, they say it throughout the film, 20 sacks a game is all that much of a David in the course of this film. Now, if you want to say the SCLSU Mud Dogs that haven't won a game in four calendar years are an underdog to the University of Louisiana National Champion football team, then yes, I suppose I could go that route. But for me, this is much more of a anti-bully story. I, I guess the way I phrased it was a grown man child stands up to all of his bullies and becomes America's best college football player. Okay, but that's what it ultimately is. Because, I mean, I can give you the statistics, which are that 90%, I think it's the ninth one, 95% of Americans will earn approximately adjusted uh, for inflation within 5% of what their parents earn. Okay, so this idea that you can rise up and, you know, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and become something and no, that hasn't, that has never really existed. And, you know, so the idea that this bumpkin out in the bayou with a, and a, a father who abandons, or abandons him and his mother who absolutely deals with everything because whatever she can't control, she just says is the devil. This kid would never, ever get to a point where he would be anything more than the, the college water boy. But for this one particular situation, he suddenly finds his niche and propels himself to greater glory as a result. Okay, but you could say that quite literally about every football player in the SEC. Like, make Bobby Boucher black, and this seems like a fairly run-of-the-mill story. A poor single mother raises and is somewhat domineering over their athletic son, and he comes to athletic prowess in playing college football and rises out of the poverty that he's been instituted in. Maybe that's the, the feel-good story or, uh, or aspect of college football. But <laughs> even though that's primarily what you're talking about as far as, as athletes playing college football, it's still a very, very small portion of society at large. And I can't even say that I would equate Boucher with that because this kid is just completely inept socially. I mean, at least some of the poor kids, you know, have some 
aspect of friends relationships have some clue as to what's going on i think the term you're looking for is arrested development yes maybe that's exactly the term i'm looking for all right so let's get into the background then of this movie do you have a plot summary ready for us oh i do after longtime water boy bobby boucher adam sandler is fired from his job at the university of louisiana because the players are so often distracted by trying to harass him, Boucher sets out to find another job as a water boy. However, after finding a new job at SCLSU, Boucher is again subjected to taunting and abuse by the players, only to take out his rage on one of them, after being encouraged to finally stand up for himself by Coach Klein, Henry Winkler. Despite his mama's protestation, Kathy Bates, Boucher quickly becomes a college football sensation, but will Boucher get the last laugh on all of his bullies? Thank you. Cast for this movie, Frank Caracci as the director and Roberto Boucher, Tim Hurley as writer, Adam Sandler as both Bobby Boucher and the other writer, Kathy Bates as Helen Mama Boucher, Henry Winkler as Coach Klein, Feruza Balk as Vicky Valancourt, Jerry Reed as Coach Red Bolu, Peter Dante as Guy Grenwy, Larry Gilliard Jr. as Derek Wallace, Blake Clark as Farmer Fran, and Jonathan Loughran as Lyle Robidoux. Recognition for this movie, The Waterboy currently has a 33% on Rotten Tomato and a 41% on Metacritic. The film opened at number one at the U.S. box office, earning ultimately $39.41 million in its opening weekend a record opening for November. The film grossed $161.5 million in the United States and a further $27.8 million internationally for a worldwide total of $190 million worldwide against an estimated projected budget of $20 million. As of 2020, The Waterboy is the highest grossing film in the sports comedy genre. Did you know? Henry Winkler's role as Coach Klein came about after he was mentioned in Adam Sandler's huge hit song, The Hanukkah Song, where Sandler sang about various Jewish or half-Jewish entertainers. Sandler said correctly that the actor who played Arthur Fonzi Fonzarelli on Happy Days is Jewish, and Winkler was thrilled by the reference and contacted Sandler to tell him so. Sandler then decided to ask Winkler if he would read the script for the coach's role and then say if he wanted to take the part. Winkler did so and immediately signed on to the film. Did you know? Kathy Bates was convinced to take the role of Helen Mama Boucher by her niece, a longtime fan of Adam Sandler. Did you know? When the film was released in November of 1998, it was preceded by the trailer for Star Wars Episode I, The Phantom Menace. Many Star Wars fans who were not fans of Adam Sandler paid the full admission price and sat through the trailer, then left the theater. Did you know? This movie was the highest-grossing football sports movie of all time before being beaten by The Blind Side from 2009. Did you know? This was the final acting role of Jerry Reed. Did you know? Suzanne Lloyd Hayes, granddaughter of silent screen star Harold Lloyd, filed a $50 million lawsuit against the Walt Disney Company in 2000, claiming that this movie was plagiarized from Lloyd's silent film classic, The Freshman, from 1925. By 2002, the courts ruled against her. Did you know? 
It is included among the American Film Institute's 2000 list of the 500 movies nominated for the top 100 funniest American movies. We'll take a quick break and we will be right back. Welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us. All right. Dad, best performance for you? Kathy Bates. I think she was by far the greatest comedic relief of this film. She had the most range. She had the most to do, actually, uh, as far as being comedic. I thought she was wonderful. Boy, when I was younger, I thought a lot more of the character, but it feels so one-dimensional up until that moment where she kind of lets him, I don't know, go within the hospital where she really starts to show some vulnerability and some extra layering to the character. I thought she clearly was having fun with it. But when your only character trait is to refer to everything from Benjamin Franklin to girls as the devil, it's not really easy to get extra dimensions to that character. Well, maybe it's just that I find so many traits that are similar to my own mother in uh, Mama Boucher. To the fact that my mother actually paid me $50 when I was in junior high to not go on a church bike trip to northern Wisconsin because she was afraid a bear would eat me. I see. I had no intention of going, but if she was going to pay me $50 for not going, I wasn't going to say no. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds definitely like you and your mom. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. My best performance was Adam Sandler. I mean, the guy single-handedly has created more characters that he's kind of delved himself into. I know he's kind of become more of the straight man as his career's gone on, and it's become necessary that he became that. But his 90s is defined by all of the unusual characters he created, from Happy Gilmore to Billy Madison, and now, of course, the water boy that somewhat live as the most iconic recognitions of his acting work and comedic work to that point. I mean, you could tell that he was a sketch comedian and that he had other talent beyond that that he could go into. Now it's not nearly the same because you don't ever have those characters. He's just kind of a bumbling dad or a middle-aged husband or whatever else that you can throw him in. And that's why his movies feel so phoned in because his work just isn't as layered or creative as it used to be. I mean, it's not to say that there's a huge difference between the water boy and whatever he did in grownups, but I just thought this was a better (laughs) recognition of his potential talent because at least he was trying. Yeah. I understand your point. Best secondary for you? Uh, Henry Winkler. Okay, we went the same. I also have him as my most charismatic. Well, I didn't, so I'll get to my most charismatic in a minute. But I I just thought Henry Winkler played this so well. I mean, he's going from being borderline assertive to being absolutely a wallflower and just fading into the woodwork. He's just hilarious in this. I mean, when you stop and think about the fact that, I mean, this is the guy who was the Fonz, and now all of a sudden he's portraying a guy who's a complete opposite. So I just thought he did a really good job. So I'm going to need your help on a few questions just to kind of examine his career. His most notable character is obviously the Fonz. And when was Happy Days approximately on? Oh, Happy Days started as a... um, is a skit comedy 
on a, a show called Love American Style. And from there, it became a series. The first year, I want to say 74, somewhere in there, 75. Okay, so it's mostly a 70s show. Oh, yes. I don't think, yes. if I remember correctly, everybody said it's about season three where they jumped the shark, and that's notably for the death of what that show was. Well, it was more, it was longer than season three. Well, I know it went on longer. I'm saying that most people count that as being the true end, though, of the good part of that show. Well, yeah, because what had taken place was this, the show had been primarily three people. It was the Fonz. It was Richie dealing with growing up in a middle class family in the 50s. And it was um, Tom Bosley as, as uh, Howard Cunningham being a parent. And quite frankly, I think I spent more time thinking about how Howard Cunningham would uh, handle a situation as a father that I did any other, including my own father, dealing with you kids. Um, because he just seems so cool about so many things. He just was laid back. He just kind of let things happen. And then he would pick up the pieces and he would kind of talk to you and say why you did something right or wrong or the way it should be or shouldn't be. I mean, the show was so iconic. It, it so permeated culture in that time frame. Using the term sit on it, everybody in my, you know, I was in grade school at the time, fifth, sixth grade, that you told everybody to sit on it. Every kid in the country was telling other kids, sit on it. And it was a big deal. So Henry Winkler was about a biggest star at that point in time as there was. The reason I asked that question was between, I would say, what, 1980, when approximately I assume the show pretty much ended, to about 1998, Henry Winkler didn't do a lot of like major parts that you can remember, right? Correct. Henry Winkler kind of faded into the background. He had written and actually had gotten awards for children's books. So he didn't do a whole lot. Okay. Because outside of this movie, and I think Barry, which is the HBO show that's been off the air for a couple of years, but that you and I love and think he's excellent in, that he finally won his Emmy for, I think for the most part, he's only really known as showing up as a character actor in random sitcoms all over the place, like being the father of the two ne'er-do-wells on Parks and Recreation, or I think he showed up in a bunch of different TV shows across the years. I think he was in maybe Psych at one point. I think he might have been in, gosh, I, I can't even remember everything that he's probably touched at one time or another. But really, he would show up for like an episode or two for an arc or you know, be a reoccurring character here and there. I think he was on Royal Pains as their dad. I mean, those are the types of levels of shows that he's just randomly showing up in. Kind of like William Shatner after a certain point. <laughs> Towards the end of the Happy Days run, Ron Howard wanted to be out and actually left the show because he wanted to get into directing. Well, this was a cash cow for ABC at the time. So ABC was do willing to do whatever it took to continue the show. And I can guarantee that Henry Winkler was very well paid for about the last three or four seasons. 
of that show. My guess is, is he made enough money if he saved and invested wisely, he didn't need to do anything else. And so he could kind of pick and choose what he liked. I'm sure you're right, but the bigger point that I'm trying to make is this movie, if he was pretty much out of acting after the fact of Happy Days ending and more or less like the better part of 20 years, this kind of launches him into that second career where he can be a character actor and do these kind of roles where he's a bit player in a larger story, but that he's still got the comedic chops to obviously be a Coach Klein who isn't afraid to wear high heels and talk to his grandma about losing a job. Okay, but you have to understand, and I'm drawing a blank as to the Barry's act, the actor plays Barry. Bill Hader. You have to understand that even in this and then later, and I'm going to tell you a story. I happen to see Bill Hader. I want to say it was on Colbert. And he's telling the story because he's on promoting Barry about how it's so great to work with Henry Winkler. They decided to meet for dinner to get to know each other before the show really got going. When they went out, there was this huge crowd, for whatever reason, between the door of the restaurant and the taxi. And haters like, how are we ever going to get through here to get out of here? And Winkler looked at him and kind of winked and said, don't worry. And he went, hey. And everybody turns, stopped, and goes, the Fonz. And the whole area opened up, and the two of them walked over and got in a cab. It was like parting of, he commented, it was like parting of the Red Sea. And this is like four or five years ago. So that's the kind of influence he's had yet. Yeah, I can definitely believe that. I just think, and I really couldn't get past, I immediately thought, okay, when we're maybe 15, 20 minutes into this movie, most charismatic was a runaway for me. It's Henry Winkler. But I couldn't really deny also giving him best secondary because he just has the most to do outside of Adam Sandler in this movie. I mean, what mama don't know won't hurt her, the Roy Orbison tattoo, the <laughs> the water sucks, the you just start running down things within the course of this movie and I came in here, I sat under my desk, I cried, I cried like a 10-year-old girl. And he sucks you in every time that you're rooting not only for Bobby, but as an extension, you're rooting for Coach Klein because you recognize that Coach Klein is the exact mentor Bobby needs because he's the guy that won't stand up for himself. Well, I, I, I can understand and I agree with a lot of your points. The most charismatic I went with was Adam Sandler simply because... For whatever reason, Adam Sandler has made a career. He he can do any basic film and put it on, like, what what's his contract with Netflix right now? Oh, I don't know. It's Astronomical some ridiculous. amount. Yeah, he, he gets, like, millions and millions of dollars for doing schlock. He can put anything on, and people will tune in and watch it. Why? Because for whatever reason, there's a certain likability. And that's charismatic. Well, and I think he's also seized and capitalized on the fact that Netflix not only is going to pay him like $10 million a movie, but they're going to send him to location and he can pick whomever he wants to be in the movie. So he just recruits all of his friends to be in it with him and they get to go on vacation and make a crappy movie that he's going to get paid well for. 
Yes. And most of them get paid well for uh, also. Exactly. I mean, if somebody wanted to pay me to go on vacation and do subpar work, how is that not the ultimate goal in life? So that takes us to best scene. Nominees I have down UL Practice, Captain Insano, Bobby Stands Up for Himself, Tackling Fuel, What Mama Don't Know, Medulla Oblongata, Bobby Gives Away the Game, First Win, Pep Rally, GED Exam, Bourbon Bowl, and Last Minute Win. Any I missed? Oh, I think you have to have fake coma and the uh, the community gathers. I guess I didn't know what to call those exactly and whether they were significant enough or not. Oh, I'll let right up front say that that's my most indelible moment. Just the fact of how Mama tries to manipulate. And you got to be pretty stupid to not realize it's a complete manipulation. And then you got to be more stupid when the entire community rallies around you and you don't understand that this is your opportunity and you don't take it because you're worried about your mama faking her illness. Okay. I mean, that was going to be one of my leftover questions for this one, but since there's nothing wrong with her, why are they admitting her to the hospital? I don't know, because otherwise it wouldn't make any difference in the plot. I mean, why would you bother? I mean, and furthermore, what hospital ever allows you to bring in that much crap and decorate it when she's only there for a day or two? I mean, notably, they let you bring your own ass into the hospital, but they don't let you bring your own ass to the hospital. Okay. They do let you bring your own Roku, but they just don't know about it. My surgeon said he'd uh, love to sit and watch Netflix with me. Oh. He even made recommendations. Oh, okay. Well, I'm glad you have such a uh, good relationship with your surgeon. You don't? Or are you just thinking every doctor's still a quack? Uh, not everyone. Mm. I still think I do a better job of diagnosing my own condition than my doctors. Of course you think you do. Anyway, what do you think is the best scene? I love the bourbon bowl. Just the whole stupidity of it. I mean, it's just so absurd. It just, you just laugh because of the sheer stupidity of it. Right down to Dan Fouts and his inane comments. Unfortunately, I think I remember enough of those inane comments being made by Dan Fouts in real time in NFL games. He plays more Matt Millen in this movie than he does Dan Fouts, because I don't think Dan Fouts is nearly this bad or this cliche. But yes, there are plenty of announcers who really have nothing great to say about the game, but are somehow thrust onto our television sets every weekend. The only thing missing, ultimately, is Brett Musburger making comments about Vicky Valancourt. Only about, like, three people are going to understand <laughs> that joke. <laughs> Uh, well, at least those three people will be laughing. <laughs> I'm one of them, and I'm not. I'm just rolling my eyes. <laughs> I couldn't believe when that happened in real life to begin with. <laughs> uh, yeah. Ay, 
All right. For me, though, and it's probably the same one that I have for both favorite scene and most indelible moment. It's the first time Bobby stands up for himself and he absolutely plants the quarterback, just knocks him the fuck out. Yeah. I mean, that's a great moment because you're just not expecting it at all if you haven't seen this movie before. And he just crushes him. I understand. I agree that for the most part, that's that's that is a good scene. It's indelible. It. I almost went with the whole crowd scene with you know because yet again the whole scene and that we'll get to that with the quotes, but Clint Howard were well. I am not a. I have it written down, but I am not a handsome man. I mean that. <laughs> Uh, that 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 just is uh, precious. The fake candlelight vigil, you mean? Yes. Okay, because there's like seven crowd scenes within the course of this movie that you could be referring to. Not associated with the fake coma. But you didn't say fake coma. Yeah, I did. Listen. Trust me, I am. Anyway, indelible moment for you? You can do it. Really? That's your oh, indelible not moment? Long. <laughs> You're going with Rob Schneider as your most indelible moment? Okay, we definitely need to take our second break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Thank you again for rejoining us. Dad, we have someone to remember again this week, and unfortunately it's somebody that I think the public may know, but really knows for his voice. Yes, Gilbert Gottfried. I used to tell this to you kids when you were little and you used to giggle right down to your toes when I'd go, oh, I'm shocked by the, or I'm going to have a heart attack by the shock of that surprise. Gilbert Gottfried. Yes, he was Iago in Aladdin. He was the original uh, Aflac duck. Aflac, but he 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 had. Uh, I, I mean, I remember watching when he was first cast as the second wave on Saturday Night Live in the early eighties. But he uh, he was a longtime comedic force. He was a comedian who did roasts. I mean, I happened to watch a video from a Comedy Central roast of Carrie Fisher. <laughs> it was just, I mean, if you just Google it and see if it comes up, watch that because it's just so good. But ultimately, Gilbert Godfrey can be best remembered for some of his jokes. One of the bits he did was the 10 dirtiest jokes you can think of. Ultimately, some of these jokes are the most foul horrible, insensitive jokes you can think of, but that was Gilbert Gottfried. He was only 67. Apparently he had medical conditions that I was not aware of, and I think a lot of people weren't, but he was a classic, and um, I I honestly can say that I'm going to miss him because whenever I knew he was going to be on a show, it was worth tuning in just to see him. I think for the most part, most of my relationship to Gottfried has been because you enjoyed him so much and would constantly quote different things. And I mean, I remember it as a kid because I loved Aladdin and between Robin Williams and Gilbert Gottfried in that movie, I mean, you have enough to go on for a lifetime probably, but 
I mean, I wonder what, if they ever got into a sound booth together, what that would have been like. Just between the two of them. I mean, it's two of the most blue comedians that you could probably ever think of going back and forth, but I digress. Regardless, I think between the Aflac duck and you quoting him all the time from different various jokes, he's just been kind of a staple of my life, that he has such a recognizable voice and that he has such a recognizable face, or did, I guess, in this point, past tense now that he's just been kind of a, a character. And I know when the news broke, I'm like, oh, only 67? Because I know he'd kind of found a certain level of additional fame now that he started doing his podcast. And he's been doing that, I think, for at least five years by this point, that he's got quite a following and quite an audience. I think the last episode that was released was earlier this month already. So for that to be his last episode, I think is kind of jarring because you never got the sense that there was anything wrong with him and that he just was a staple of the comedic community for as long as I can remember, because he's been part of the public consciousness, at least with his voice, basically as long as I've been alive. I personally will miss his talents. So with that, we remember him very fondly, obviously with uh, a moment of silence here and thank him for his contributions. Thank you. All right. I think he would be honored or touched by us doing best funniest lines next. I know this is a, usually a terrible segue, but we're going to go right into it because this might be the only time it's a good segue. All right. My first one up, Bobby Boucher. My mama says that alligators are ornery because they got all them teeth and no toothbrush. Bobby Boucher. Mama, when did Ben Franklin invent electricity? Mama, that's nonsense. I invented electricity. Ben Franklin is the devil. Coach Klein, son, you just opened up a whole case of whoop-ass. Mama, you don't have what they call social skills. That's why you never have any friends, except for your mama. Coach Klein, Gatorade not only quenches your thirst better, it tastes better, too. Mama, no son of mine is playing any foosball. I'm just going to take a small pause. Until I had the subtitles on for watching it this week, I've always thought she said it was foosball, like the tabletop soccer type game. Apparently it's fool's ball. Really? All the subtitles always read fool with an L. Fool's ball. I had never in a million years thought of that. I don't know. I just wanted to point it out because I've thought it was a completely different thing for almost 25 years. Dan Fouts. The water boy just needed some water. Brent Musburger. Wow, Dan. Did you come up with that all by yourself? Dan Fouts. Shut up, Brent. Bobby Boucher. Now that's what I call high quality H2O. Paco. Woohoo! Look at Bobby Tackle. I haven't seen a tackle like that since Joe Montana. Walter, Joe Montana was a quarterback, you idiot. No, Colonel Sanders, you're wrong. Mama's right. The water boy, Bobby Boucher. Why did you do it as Foghorn Leghorn? <laughs> I say, I say. Mama was right. I'm going to sit on you. Go ahead. All right, I only have one left. Bobby Boucher, Captain Insano shows no mercy. 
Paco. I am not what you would call a handsome man. The good Lord chose not to bless me with with charm, athletic ability, or a fully functional brain. <laughs> I'm sorry. You can't even get the words out of your mouth. <laughs> Uh, or or a fully functional brain. You see, you're an inspiration to all of us who who weren't born handsome and charming and cool. And, and, uh, thank you, Clint Howard. You got any more? Uh, no. All right, then let's go to the Stanley rubric. Legacy is up first. I went with a one and a half on the industry side of this because it still holds a genre record. So I'm going to give it an extra half point for that. But the industry does not think that much of this. And it's only the 10th highest grossing film Adam Sandler has ever made. And I don't even think that counts the Netflix films that I think are way overwatched because they were on Netflix. That being said, I give this a four for the audience since this still plays relatively well to a general audience. And I know it's still being popularly quoted almost 25 years later. It's a regular cable movie. And despite being only the 10th highest grossing, this is still one of Sandler's most recognizable roles. So that ends as a 5.5. I went a little higher with the industry simply because this was a cash cow. I went with a 2.5 because the fact that you take a $20 million film and make $190 million with it, the industry said, we don't get it. We don't like it. We don't care. We're making cash. So I went with a 2.5 for that. For the public, I think, yes, it's quoted, but I don't think it's nearly as well received or thought of as you claim or think about. I mean, I don't think a lot of people sit and go, oh, yeah, the water boy. So I went with a three for that. It is, but it's not quite as common as you think. So come at it from a different angle, but basically end up at the same exact spot. A 5.5 average between us. You didn't need any help with the math, did you? I did not. Not like last week. Okay. Impact significance. The critics absolutely slammed this one for not being (laughs) sensitive to mama's boys. And while I say that tongue in cheek, that's pretty much true. Comedies that rely on sight gags, cheap physical laughs, and frat humor are never going to appeal to critics or the industry, so I give it a one for that side of it. That being said, this was a huge movie for me and my friends at the time, and I quoted this regularly for about 10 years. I, again, emphasized the fact that I grew up in a football culture, was constantly around football practices, and the amount of water boy lines that would come up regularly among us was often. So it was pretty much my introduction to Adam Sandler and the role that I most revered him for up until the point where I couldn't bear to watch his mailed-in movies anymore. And it was number one at the box office at the time, was a huge hit. Probably one of the things that my generation knows Sandler and Kathy Bates for. And while he may have been Fonzie to your generation, Henry Winkler is probably most known to mine as Coach Klein. I went with a four for that side of it for a five overall. Okay, so impact and significant you went with industry being what? A one, and the audience a four. Again, completely different. Okay, I I, I went with higher. I went with a two for the industry because even though the critics hated it, 
It led to so many more opportunities for Adam Sandler to do whatever he wanted. He parlayed this into doing some some rom-coms. He did a lot more comedies that were basically films that most people, you know, probably 10 years before would have said, no, we're not paying for that. But because of the fact that he's making so much money off this, there were a lot of producers and a lot of people or executives in Hollywood were going, okay, we don't understand it, but okay, maybe we just don't understand the level of reception that the general American public has for such things. So, okay, we'll let it go. So I went with the two. But for the public, the fact that this film made so much money and became so quotable and was commented about for so many you know, there was about a three-year window where everybody talked about this film. I went with a five for the public because I I don't remember a lot of comedies that had that much impact in the moment. So I went with a seven for the total. Well, if I may just slightly push back on the industry side of it, I don't know if I'm going to have much of an argument against your audience perspective, but this is at least the third big Adam Sandler movie that had come out. I think he had done both Happy Gilmore in like 95, 96 range, and he had done Billy Madison. I know Little Nicky had come out before this. I don't think that was very well received, but both Billy Madison and Happy Gilmore as his first couple of films out that he had led and at least showed he could do some stuff. I think those at least made enough money that they got this type of movie off the ground. But you're right. He would not be making Mr. Deeds or Big Daddy to the budgets that he did or 50 First Dates and become one of the most recognizable comedic stars had it not been for this movie. But that also being said, he comes from the SNL, I guess, flowchart, more or less. I mean, he's coming after Mike Myers had already broken out. And this became kind of the model that the best comedian on the show for at least a couple of years, also Eddie Murphy for that matter, but that was well before his time. You eventually broke out and you were a comedic star doing your own movies and stuff that was created somewhat on the back of the original show. Uh, Lest we forget mentioning one of your favorite movies to just randomly throw out on this program, Coneheads. (laughs) It was not a good movie. It was not in any sense. And the fact that we keep mentioning it is probably prolonging its death. The the skits were funny, but the skits only lasted about three or four minutes. That's about how long you could do it and make it funny. Exactly. Trying to do two hours of that was not to the same successful tune of a Wayne's World. I mean, even Night at the Roxbury pretty much petered out after about the first 20 minutes. Yeah. All right, novelty, I'll let you go first. I stopped to think about this type of film, and I couldn't think of a lot of options. I I regret, I thought about it later, and I was busy, so I couldn't check. When was Rudy released? I think 1993. Okay, so it's kind of Rudy from a comedic standpoint. So actually, when you're mentioning in the Did You Know you know, that uh, Harold Lloyd's heirs um, sued, I think he would have almost, you know, Rudy would have been more likely to have been a a type of film 
that should have sued over Harold Lloyd. But still, uh, I couldn't think of a whole lot that was of similar ilk or similar circumstance. So I went with a seven on this simply because I couldn't think of too much. Yeah, there were college football films and there were similar type stories in different settings, but the combination was enough unique that I went with the seven. Realistically, the water boy is just a combination of his Billy Madison and, or his Billy Madison voice with his happy Gilmore character at times and a more subdued mama's boy version. I mean, realistically, if you've watched Adam Sandler movies, this is not all that different from anything that he did before that. It's kind of in his wheelhouse where he's going to talk like this the whole movie. And that's somehow how he was endearing to America for probably a good 10-year period where he was one of the biggest comedic stars. And that's fine, and I still enjoy the movies and the rest of it. But other than the fact that it's football, and I think this probably has a little bit more to say as far as a comedy from the structure of it, if you want to go beyond the surface, although I would not suggest it with most Adam Sandler movies, (laughs) this to me does not scream novelty or uniqueness. It just doesn't. I mean, he's done three sports action comedy movies. He did a remake of The Longest Yard. He did this, and he did Happy Gilmore. So even among Adam Sandler movies, I wouldn't say it's unique. So I went with a very middle-of-the-road five. Do you need help with the math? No, because it's exactly the same as last category. Mm. Classicness. Go ahead. Well, you know, originally his best friend is African-American. There's some aspect of uh, women having significant roles with Vicky and Mama. There aren't too many off-color jokes that are either racial or insensitive as to orientation. I I had a hard time finding a whole lot, although the humor, I think, somewhat could be considered dated under the circumstances. So I went with a seven simply because I couldn't you know, I go. I start with a five. I know you start with a seven, but I couldn't find too much wrong. But I, it's not like I was going, "Wow, this is so en- enlightening for the time period as far as culture and consideration of um, the classicness aspect." So, even though you you say that, isn't one of the biggest diversity plays within this movie that there was a Jewish head coach? <laughs> Okay, but he doesn't talk about being Jewish. I mean, he would be in the Jewish Hall of Fame just by factor of being a head coach of a university. I'm sorry. Oh, that, that That's no. terrible to say, and I probably should delete that. But. Because there were several, several Jewish athletes. You know, you can talk about Sandy Koufax. You can talk about... Um, okay, Hank but we're Greenberg. still having arguments over blacks getting head coaching jobs. I mean, we haven't even started with Jews getting head coaching jobs. <laughs> um, <sighs> no, I I agree with many of the points that you made, and it were some of the things I was kicking around in my own head. The problem is I feel a little bit squeamish in discussing Bobby Boucher as a character because I'm not really sure if we're celebrating the character, like a different form of Forrest Gump, or we're making fun of him for cheeky laughs. Or a bit of both. I mean, if I had to guess, it would probably be some of both, but I'm not sure how that makes me feel about all of this. So despite that, I do still feel pretty much the same about this movie as 
when I originally saw it in 1998. It just hasn't really aged. I mean, there are a couple of dated references. Like, why would you drop in that they haven't won a game since 1994 when somebody's obviously going to be probably watching this movie after 1998? Why didn't you just say we haven't won a game in four years? I mean, that that would be so easy to drop in, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to anybody anymore. And so the joke kind of is ruined. And those little moments, I know they're little, but they always take me out of these movies. But I still chuckle at this. And there is still some small magical quality this movie from Jerry Reed to Henry Winkler to Kathy Bates. I can't ever really put my finger on it. It's probably a certain level of nostalgia. Because if I saw this movie now, I probably wouldn't think it was that funny because I'm a comedy snob. But I don't know. There, There's just something always about this movie that reminds me of that time when I was a little kid playing Pop Warner football and trying to be Bobby Boucher. So I can't imagine that this ages well since the modern Bobby Boucher is more likely to believe in QAnon than to play college football, but I'm going to end up at a five here. All right. Well, you go ahead with rewatchability to start. Uh, I went with a 8.5. It's about a fourth tier rewatchable for me. And if you know my tiers, obviously 10 being one, 9.52, 9 uh, for a three. This is about a fourth tier movie. It's not one I watch every year. It's one I put on every couple of years, but I enjoy just the same whenever it's on. Still get the same laughs and still enjoy it just as much. So 8.5 for me. For me, I went with an eight, even though I haven't seen it very often. If I find it on, it's worth sitting and watching. I'm not necessarily going to go out of my way or plan my schedule around it. We're necessarily set my DVR to record it, but it, it's a fun film. It's something that I enjoy watching. If I'm sitting around with people that I know and, you know, we're just kind of looking for an opportunity to have fun, yeah, this is a, a film that you can sit and just watch and just enjoy. I know it's still somewhat lowest common denominator, but I think that's the enjoyability about some of these movies. I love a lot of comedies that I grew up with that are very low and lowest common denominators, whether they're uh, frat boy humor or stoner humor. Okay. I mean, we can talk about low common denominator. We can talk about the three stooges. We can talk about uh, Cheech and Chong. <laughs> they're not high art, but they were fun. And there's a, a, a specific dichotomy between art and fun. And, you don't always have to have everything highbrow. These are films that are just there to enjoy. Well, that's why I appreciate the films that cross over and can be both entertaining and art. I mean, that's probably why Groundhog Day is so high on our list is because it's philosophical, it's deep, it's layered, it's got a lot more going for it, and it's extremely funny. Agreed. You're you're not going to get that very often, and it's why I don't think that critics or the general public or movie lovers necessarily know where to put a lot of comedy movies. And so I'm glad we're doing these, even if, I mean, this is not going to rank highly on our greatest movie list, but it's just fun and entertaining for a show that we primarily do to entertain ourselves. And we, we oftentimes tell individuals who are listening... If you haven't seen films we're reviewing, watch them. I mean, this is a film that you, if you've never seen it and you're sitting around and your significant other turns and says, oh, I want to watch a film. This is one you could put on 
and have a good evening or the nice laugh without having to spend a lot of energy feeling about things or thinking about things. This is, to me, Friday nights is always my unwind night. This is a Friday night film. Certainly, our opinion is not the final word on anything. So if you want to develop your own opinion, if you have your own opinion, share it with us. We're completely open to any comments or reviews that you have for us because God knows we are not the only opinions on movies. But anyway, let's finish this up. Audience scores, we had an 88% for Google users, a 71% for Rotten Tomato users for a 7.95 average. So to recap, that is a 5.5 for Legacy, a 6 for Impact Significance, a 6 for Novelty, a 5 for Classicness, an 8.25 for Rewatchability, and a 7.95 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of 38.7. And that would currently place it just ahead of The Terminator and beneath Mr. Roberts on our current list. All right. Not, 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 uh, not surprising. I think it would be if you just kind of threw out certain names to people, because I think The Terminator has some significance to certain swaths of, the, of people, just because I think T2, as we mentioned in that episode particularly, was such an iconic and blockbuster movie that they have to assume that T1 was this like great gargantuan film. But given what we talked about in that episode, and I think that was near the end of last season, it doesn't surprise me in context by comparison. But really comparing the Terminator, the Waterboy, and Mr. Roberts all to each other, three films you would never have in the same sentence otherwise. All right, so remaining thoughts for the week. I'm just going to talk about something very briefly, okay? For those of you who are not aware, in the early 50s, there was a guitar player who basically developed the electric guitar by the name of Les Paul. And Les Paul taught several individuals how to play. Uh, Les Paul gave instructions to, oh, Jimi Hendrix. Les Paul also gave instructions to a country guitar player by the name of Chet Atkins. Uh, Les Paul was instrumental in providing inspiration to Jimmy Page and several people. Well, Chet Atkins taught Jerry Reed to play the guitar. And if you would ask most people... And again, country music and rock and roll, I know there are people who kind of diss country music who are rock and roll fans. They're the same root. They came from the same genre. There's a lot of crossover. Jerry Reed was one of the most phenomenal guitar players of all time. He did some acting. It was kind of a supplement to his career. Um, The fact that this film is his last acting role and he passed not too long after the film was done. Jerry Reed was such a phenomenal artist and such a phenomenal uh, guitar player. For anybody who has not listened or heard Jerry Reed play, it's worth just Googling and just saying Jerry Reed guitar and listening to Jerry Reed play the electric guitar. He was so good. The fact that he's more remembered for this film and for uh, Smokey and the Bandit it's almost kind of a disservice to the level of play and artist, 
uh, artistic talent he had as a musician. You know, we don't do a lot of recommendations for stuff on this particular program, but given its recent ending and the fact that I think it was a show that was almost developing an audience primarily on the back of the fans or the small community who had seen it and promoting it online. I'll do my small presser here for people to watch it while it waits for its season two. Severance might be one of the best TV shows on currently. If you do not have Apple TV Plus, I mean, maybe you canceled it after Ted Lasso ended its last season, but do yourself a favor if you like psychological thriller type stuff, especially some of the movies that we got during the 70s. I think it's kind of a throwback to that, and it's very well written and developed. This show has a lot of places it can go by the end of its first nine episodes. They're already planning a season two for 10 episodes. I mean, Apple's got enough money to throw at stuff, but their batting average is quite high right now with the amount of programming that they have on and good quality programming. So I really enjoyed that show. I did not appreciate necessarily having to wait week to week, but I think if you go and binge it right now, if you have not done so already, I think it is an incredibly bingeable show, so you won't have to wait the week between the last two episodes that I did that seemed somewhat excruciating, but it is the finale it might be one of the best hours of television I've seen in a long time. John Turturro's in that, correct? Yes, John Turturro is the, in that. Uh, there are a couple of other smaller bit character actors. Adam Scott, who primarily was Parks and Recreation and Step Brothers fame, he's the primary lead character. But you also have Oscar-winning actress Patricia Arquette is in the show as well. And you have Oscar-winning actor as well, Christopher Walken, who makes okay. several appearances through the course of the show. And I think it's only going to get bigger as the show continues to expand because it's very limited to a kind of small world at the moment. But it's steadily going to increase in size as we get further and further out, explaining kind of the mystery box that is this TV show at the moment. Well, the only reason I mention that is because John Turturro is one of those actors where if he's in something, I know it's going to be good enough to watch. Yeah, I probably would agree. I think there are a couple of movies that are a little bit strange that he's in that I don't quite understand, but we'll get to that in time. Even so, I think he's been a great TV and movie actor for a long time that you and I both appreciate. And one of those guys, I think he came up at least on one of our lists for our favorite character actor performances. Yes. I just enjoy the show because it it really challenges me to think about and theorize everything. And it still delivers on all the promise. There are not many TV shows that can surprise everybody. And then even when the surprise happens, doesn't seem to disappoint anyone. So I, somehow it has that magical quality, and so I'm very much looking forward to a season two whenever they decide to grace me with it. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week we will be discussing a brand new film for both of us, Victory from 1981, directed by John Huston, written by Evan Jones and Yabo Yablonski, starring Sylvester Stallone, Michael Caine, and Max von Sydow, and Pele. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. 
You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com to sign up for our newsletter or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. <laughs>